Northern Ireland has a serious problem of low productivity, which is related to problems with the education system. It relates to the fact that we have far too few graduates in Northern Ireland compared to those in the Republic. We don't have the same technical skills and we have far too many school pupils that effectively drop out of the system. And so you have got this serious problem of underinvestment in education leading to low productivity. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. This month's podcast is based on an article entitled Who is Better Off? The Irish, the Northern Irish or the British? A Regional Economic Comparison. Published very recently on the Aaron's website, it's by Paul Gosling, who's a writer and a journalist uh, and author of A New Ireland, A Ten-Year Plan? Question mark. And commenting on his paper uh, is John Fitzgerald, who should be known to regular listeners to the podcast. He's appeared on a number of them. And John is an adjunct professor at Trinity College and a research associate at the ESRI. So you're both very welcome. Maybe, Paul, you could begin by just sort of setting out in general terms you know, the purpose and the, and the scope uh, of your paper. Yes, uh, it's completely obvious that we have a constitutional conversation taking place at the moment, much of which is led by emotion rather than statistics or facts or reasoned analysis. And the one question that keeps popping up, which isn't really answered is, well, if you live in Northern Ireland or if you live in the Republic, what do you expect the outcome to be in terms of your quality of life and your standard of living and income? Um, and uh, this paper doesn't answer that question, but it does look at the comparison of where we are today in terms of what the cost of living is and the standard of living is compared between the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So really, it's an attempt at looking at existing analysis and existing statistical resources and looking at the answer. And Rory, there isn't a simple answer because it depends very much on your personal circumstances. Uh, what we can say is that the benefits and pensions regime in the Republic of Ireland is significantly more generous than that in Northern Ireland or Great Britain. Uh, average incomes are significantly higher in the Republic of Ireland than Northern Ireland, or indeed for most people in Great Britain. But it is your personal circumstances determine that whether you are better off in one of the jurisdictions or another. So there is no simple answer, but it's an attempt to put together some of the facts. And you mentioned a couple of the, the headline findings, if you like, regarding income and uh, welfare. Uh, but uh, wh what are some of the other sort of main points that uh, come out from your, your paper? Well, clearly the cost of living is significantly higher in Ireland than it is in Northern Ireland or Great Britain. But with all these things, it does depend on your exact circumstances and where you live. So, for example, incomes are much, much higher in Dublin than they are in Donegal. Uh, incomes are higher in Lisbon and Castlereagh than they are in Derry and Straban. But equally, incomes are higher in London and the southeast of England than they are in the northeast of England. Um, though equally within London, they vary substantially. Now, clearly, we have a conversation going on about the housing crisis in Ireland and the very high rents in Dublin. And the fact is that rents 
and housing costs generally are much higher in South Dublin than they are, for example, in County Leitrim. But equally, they are very high in London compared to other places. And so perhaps we get that a bit out of perspective because housing costs are higher in London than they are in Dublin. But the focus is very much on Dublin. Equally, we're seeing certain things change in Northern Ireland that are not necessarily good for Northern Ireland in terms of the cost of living. So we've seen, for example, that inflation for housing prices and rental costs in Northern Ireland exceeding those in Great Britain. So that's uh, the, the housing costs, if you like, are catching up in Northern Ireland with those in Great Britain. But on the other hand, our income in Northern Ireland is not matching in terms of increase that in Great Britain or the Republic of Ireland. We're falling behind. In real terms, pays suffering significantly in Northern Ireland. To a large extent, that's because the public sector is the main employer in Northern Ireland. And because of the austerity policies of British national government, you're seeing a large percentage of workers in Northern Ireland that are losing real pay because they're not getting any sort of pay increase. So you can see that the cost of living crisis is hitting Northern Ireland more than most other places, either in Ireland or Great Britain. Thank you very much. And we'll talk a bit later on about this aspect of the paper. But one of the things I found really interesting was that you did um, set out a basis for comparison under various headings between North, South and Great Britain slash the UK as a whole. And secondly, you've also... Um, where available, gone into some of the regional um, differences, both in Northern Ireland uh, and in the Republic, but also, of course, in in Great Britain itself. John, uh, you've written quite a bit on um, standards of living and you know disposable income, uh, both North and South. Um, what approach would you take to uh, Paul's analysis of the income uh, question? And well, Paul highlights the complexity of this issue. And there was an earlier um, uh, paper um, by Adele Bergen and, and Seamus McGuinness uh, of the SRI who disagreed with something I'd said earlier. So this is an area of debate, but it is pretty clear that incomes before you adjust for cost of living are higher in the Republic than in Great Britain, which are in turn higher than in Northern Ireland. and. Looking at wage rates in Ireland, um, they were um, well below uh, British wage rates between the 1920s up to about 1970. And even for quite a bit of that period, they were below wage rates in Northern Ireland. But whether it was EU membership or whatever other reasons, Irish wage rates between um, 1970 and 2010 Bob along, give or take the exchange rate, at roughly the GB rate, which was um, um, a, above, um, a bit above, maybe five, ten percent above Northern Ireland. In the last decade, um, wage rates in the Republic have moved significantly above those in Great Britain, and even more so um, than than in Northern Ireland. Now you have to then, as Paul has talked about, adjust for the cost of living. But one of the factors in why wage rates are higher is the average educational attainment or the skills of those who are working and the sectors they're working in uh, are very uh, are higher certainly than in northern ireland and within the republic the average earnings for somebody working for a foreign multinational like intel or Pfizer or whatever 
is about 70,000, where it's about 35,000 for somebody working in an Irish firm. So there are big differences, and it is the very large number uh, of big employment in multinationals in the Republic, um, highly productive, highly educated workers, which pulls up the average. So that's in terms of incomes. In uh, There is another measure in terms of national income, and there, Ireland has moved significantly ahead of the United Kingdom as a whole, and in particular, Northern Ireland. But what we choose to spend our money on is rather different. We spend a bit more on investment, and we actually save a lot of money in Ireland, whereas in Britain, um, they're using up their savings. So part of the difference, the higher standard of living, if you measure it in terms of national income, isn't available or isn't being currently used by households in the Republic. So there is an issue in terms of consumption per head, whether um, how much higher the standard of living is than in Northern Ireland. But it, it comes down to, as Paul says, uh, differences between individuals, regional differences and so on. And measuring the standard of living is very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I mean, it's fair to say then that the real divergence between Ireland and, and Great Britain really began with the recovery, in our case, from the great financial uh, crisis. Um, and Paul, has have, it, have relative incomes in Northern Ireland uh, stayed br- broadly in line with or in the same proportion to um, British incomes in this period? I mean, I know, I know there are, you point to certain differences uh, partly again as a result of the composition of the labour force, but but in broad terms, um, has there been any significant change in relative positions over the last uh, t- ten or fifteen years? Well, there's been a number of changes that have been happening. Um, one of which is that the the scale of the problem of low pay has been uh, reduced within Northern Ireland in particular because of the introduction of the national living wage by George Osborne some years ago. Despite that, Northern Ireland in particular and Great Britain as well has a significant problem in low pay, much bigger problem than in the Republic of Ireland. And that is a serious problem. And as John has alluded to, that relates to the much higher levels of productivity and also external investment in Ireland. And Northern Ireland has a serious problem of low productivity, which is related to problems with the education system. It relates to the fact that we have far too few graduates in Northern Ireland compared to those in the Republic. We don't have the same technical skills and we have far too many uh, school pupils that effectively drop out of the system. I mean, in Northern Ireland, the school leaving age is 16, whereas in England and the Republic of Ireland, it's 18. And so you you have got the serious problem of underinvestment in education leading to low productivity. And, and that is the core of the difference. And I think, Rory, one other thing that this touches on, which this paper is not attempting to answer, is what happens after unity if we have reunification of the two states of Ireland. Because there can be no quick fix. You can't instantly have Northern Ireland having a similar economic outcome to that of the Republic of Ireland simply by changing the constitutional status, because we've got a endemic tale of underinvestment in education and skills, which would continue 
after reunification. And that is something that probably you can say Ireland is benefiting not simply from a faster recovery from the Great Recession, but also long-term investment in education and skills. And it probably takes 20 to 30 years to fully change the, the, the structure of a society in ways that benefit from a reformed education system. Yeah, I know that one of John's uh, points, which I heard him make on a number of occasions, is that the biggest single thing that could be done to improve Northern Ireland's productivity would be for a substantial number of those Northerners, those graduates um, who have been either educated in or have gone to Britain uh, to come back at some point. That would change things more quickly um, than you know, investment in the education system, vital though though that would would be. I think the point you make about reunification is very interesting because there tends to be in this debate, and especially I'd say on the part of those who advocate United Ireland, an assumption that in a way you can simply assume that um, Southern standards, as it were, or Southern levels of of income and well-being will simply transfer across to Northern Ireland, whereas, of course, there are significant regional differences uh, within the Republic as well. Absolutely. And and I think if there's one point which I'm trying to make in this paper, it is the fact that we need to have much stronger attention on regional policy. And whether you're looking at Britain, the Republic or Northern Ireland, we have a serious problem, which is not experienced generally by the rest of Europe. Uh, we have a serious problem of regional inequality. And Donegal is way behind most of the rest of Ireland. And the, the northwest where I'm based is much behind Belfast. But equally, you can see in particular following the closure of the mines in England, that the northeast of England has suffered sign- significant damage economically, dating back really to the 1980s economic policy, which is why I say these things can't be turned around very quickly. Paul, I was going to ask you about this question of the the cost of living. I mean, you've already alluded to the cost of housing, for example, but you know, in in quite a lot of categories, it's striking that costs are a good bit higher um, in the Republic uh, vis-a-vis the EU average and also vis-a-vis the UK as a whole, but equally that Northern Ireland, in some cases, has people have to pay more for things than they do in, in Britain. Yeah, I, I was very surprised at this, actually, when looking through the, the detail of the statistics, that in terms of gr- groceries and your average weekly grocery bill, uh, there's only one part of the UK that pays more than the, in Northern Ireland, and that is the southeast of England, which is a very high-income region. So the the second highest regional cost for grocery purchases are in Northern Ireland, despite having uh, the second lowest uh, incomes, or, uh, or the lowest incomes, in fact, on average. So you've got a, a real disparity there. Um, and housing costs, as you say, are increasing significantly. So you've got this imbalance between average pay, in particular around the fact we've got very high levels of low pay in Northern Ireland, a big disparity between that and the fact that our grocery costs are unusually high and the housing rental costs are rising significantly. So that's uh, that's an indication of why the cost of living squeeze has hit Northern Ireland more than other places. But still, there's quite a large gap uh, in some of these categories between the Republic um, and and the North, am I right in saying? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ireland's cost of living is, is much higher 
than than other places. Uh, and partly that is to do with where people spend their money. Housing costs in Dublin are very high, but equally in London, they are very, very high as well. Um, and in a sense, we have this problem in all three jurisdictions that economic activity is sucked into the capital and not sufficiently spread across a wider area. And that is a failure of government policy in all three jurisdictions, I would argue. It is interesting, of course, in the debate on unity, people tend to point very often to the most visible issues uh, and also those which lend themselves to anecdote. And of course, house prices in in Dublin and rentals in particular. I think you, you make the point that there's a particular issue in the rental market in Dublin, which I think is apparent to all of us even more than in regard to the, the housing market um, more 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 generally. Um, John, can we move on to um, a very broad sort of question, which is that of inequality within both North and, and South and indeed within Great Britain as well, uh, and taking into account also welfare rates, the extent to which those um, you know, ameliorate differences in, in basic income uh, and so on. If you if you look at the standardised measures of inequality, um, UK was high and has remained relatively high in a European context. The US obviously is much more unequal. Um, uh, uh, there's been little or no progress in the last twenty years. Whereas in the Republic, since the seventies, uh, it has become steadily more equal. Not because of pay; it's quite uneven. In as I mentioned earlier, there are people earning um, in the aircraft leasing business. The average income is a quarter of a million. Um, um, so uh, uh, it's not in pay, but the tax system is very redistributive. So inequality in Ireland is now approaching that levels of Scandinavia, for example, Sweden. So there's been a continual improvement. It's interesting, um, and this is one of the things, Paul, that I had not known reading uh, your your article, was it's actually low in Northern Ireland um, as well. Um, basically, the top incomes in Britain or in London, as you've mentioned, are not Northern Ireland. So if you take out Northern Ireland on its own, it's a pretty equal place. The problem is, though, the poverty levels are high in Northern Ireland and much higher than in the Republic. That um, just because you're equal, um, if your incomes are low, then uh, the bottom half of the distribution are really hit. So I thought, Paul, that was an interesting finding for me, the combination of relatively even distribution of incomes and a very significant poverty rate in Northern Ireland, which of course is related to the, the poor welfare system. I mean, you could argue, I think, that what's happened is that Britain has adopted the United States model of economic construction, whereas Ireland is closer to a European model of the the, the social market. In other words, the British governments, in particular the Conservative governments in Britain, have seen as the ideal model uh, to place the burden on individual responsibility for their own welfare. So there's an expectation that individuals will contribute more to their pensions and also have money put away to cover them if they fall ill. And the model within the Irish Republic is more towards accepting the European principles that you need to support people through hard times. And I think that is a significant political difference that is not always obvious. I suppose, interestingly, you know, there there's, seems to be little or no political market um, in the Republic 
so far as I can tell, for uh, a, you know, for want of a better term, a more right wing or more individualistic approach to economic policy. But also in Northern Ireland, if I you know, if I think about it, and maybe this is because the lack of fiscal responsibility, but it seems that the parties there are all you know fairly much in the same place um, when it comes to questions of uh, redistribution. I mean, maybe the DUP a bit less so, but certainly. I don't think there's anybody in Northern Ireland really who equates to the uh, the right wing of the Conservative Party. Uh, it, it, everything in Northern Ireland is perceived through the, the the prism of identity. So you don't actually get a real understanding of where different parties' economic policies really sit, especially, as you say, they don't have to accept fiscal responsibility for the implementation of policies. Um Given the way the DUP votes in the House of Commons, I think you'd have to assume that it would be, if it had the opportunity, it would be economically aligned with the right wing of the Conservative Party. Uh, but it doesn't have to actually display that because it doesn't actually uh, broadly control uh, tax policy. Yes, in terms of rates policy within Northern Ireland, which is the income levied on property values, uh, yes, the DUP is very keen to hold down that, that tax. But whether that means that it would like to have uh, levels of taxation that is similar to the Republic, well, I doubt that. I, I, I would suggest that it's more closely aligned with the with the Conservative Party. It's just that you don't really see the effective implementation of economic policy within Northern Ireland because that's not how the political system works. Well, in the Aaron's polls, um, which were conducted with the Irish Times at the start of this year, end of last year, it was interesting that... Uh, Unionists' attitudes to social and economic issues uh, mapped more closely with those of Fine Gael voters in the Republic than with with any others. But of course, Fine Gael um, itself is, in terms of its actions, is um, whatever about rhetoric is is not really um, a centre right liberal party. I suppose it's fair to say at 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 present. But uh, again, on inequality, Northern Ireland does have an exceptionally low. Uh, unemployment rate, but I think you say that doesn't tell the whole story. Yes, I, I try not to talk about the unemployment rates within Northern Ireland when we're talking about comparisons, because I think that is misleading. We've got a real uh, crisis in Northern Ireland of economic inactivity. Now, in part, that's to do with the proportion of the population that is still in full-time education, but essentially it is to do with uh, ill health, disability, caring responsibilities. And you could argue that this is a hangover from the troubles. Perhaps there's a large number of people that are either physically or mentally disabled from the conflict that are unable to work. But one way or another, we've got a very high percentage of people that are unable to work. And so if you compare the employment rate rather than the unemployment rate, then what you get is a more reasonable answer to the question. And that suggests that basically... The labour market in Great Britain is tighter than that in Northern Ireland. We've got more people as a proportion of the population in Northern Ireland that are not available for work or unable to work or unable to gain employment. The situation in the Republic of Ireland is slightly different because the figures in Northern Ireland are skewed by the high level of public sector employment, which means that those people in work will typically stay for long periods of time, whereas in the Republic, you've got a more dynamic economy, which you have more people moving between different jobs according to where demand is. So the figures there are, again, slightly different. But broadly, the employment rate 
is highest in Great Britain. Um, so it's you know it's it, I think it's better to look at the employment rate rather than the unemployment rate. Any thoughts on that, John? Yeah, I, well, the, the 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 republic is at full employment. It is at over full employment, and in order to fill the huge increase in employment over the last three years, um, you have very substantial immigration, and the immigration is different from immigration much the rest of Europe. They are on average graduates, um, and they've become even more, uh, 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 the proportion who are graduates has actually increased in the last two years. So we're sucking in skills. It poses a problem in the Republic because the economy is growing so rapidly and all these people are being sucked into the high-paying, high-value-added multinational sector. They've got to be housed. And actually, if you're if you're earning um, a, a lot, you're able to outbid people. And the other thing is that we have allocated our resources that now a third of the wage bill comes from multinational enterprises. Um, and people are working there rather than building construction and providing the services. And actually, if you want to solve the housing problem in the Republic, you probably have to slow down the growth in the multinationals. Um, it's the golden goose that's laid the golden eggs, um, but we'd prefer a few fewer eggs. We need the, the eggs to keep on coming, but we need fewer eggs at the moment and more resources allocated to housing. So um, I think that the unemployment rate, um, when you're at full employment, but it's the migration which you need to look at in the Republic rather than the unemployment rate at this stage. Though I suppose it's fair to say that, you know, as we record this, there is a little bit of growing anxiety, I suppose, about the stability of employment in, in some of the bigger companies, tech and otherwise. And of course, only yesterday we heard about the planned closure of the Wyeth plant in Limerick, so that's rather different, I suppose, in, in many ways from from other multinational em, em, employers. Um, this is not something which is covered in the paper, um, but as John raises migration, um, I would either of you kind of know offhand roughly what the the level of inward uh, migration to Northern Ireland is, um, and 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 who is actually coming coming in. It's certainly changing. The demography of Northern Ireland is certainly changing quite uh, significantly. I did a recent piece of analysis looking at first languages in the least diverse part of Northern Ireland, which is the Mid and East Antrim area. And I think there's 300 first languages that are spoken within that district council area. And that, as I say, is the least diverse. It's it's the one where, you, you, you know, it's the opposite of, say, Drogheda. I mean, you, you walk around... Uh, Eastern Mid Antrim, and sometimes you don't see very many faces that do not appear to originate from from the area. Um, Belfast is very different, so you have situations that are different according to the locality within Northern Ireland. But the feel would be that it's uh, is changing quite rapidly. I certainly don't have any statistics around that in terms of the existing movement on a year by year basis. One of the things which is interesting is to look, the latest figures, comparable figures are from 2011, for uh, uh, people born in the Republic and born in Northern Ireland living in Britain. Um, In Britain, uh, Northern Ireland, you were looking at um, 14% uh, working in or living in Britain. 
Whereas in the Republic, you are down to eight or nine percent. You've seen a dramatic fall because um, it is the outflow of people like in Northern Ireland. The issue is people go, um, but don't come back. In the Republic, people go and the bulk of them are homing pigeons. They come back and the research done in the SRI shows that returned immigrants controlling for qualifications and so on earn seven percent more. They're more productive. So that actually they bring a foreign language, they bring different skills back. And that, so uh, uh, the, the contrast in emigration um, is important, as well as the contrast in immigration. I looked at the figures on the, the most recent census, and in Northern Ireland, from memory, 97% of the population recorded themselves in the census as being uh, essentially white European from either Northern Ireland or from Great Britain. You compare that to London, where the figure is 50%, um, and half the population of London either originates from Asia or African descent, or else they are white Europeans that have come from uh, the European Union. So what you can see is despite the discussions, often very heated discussions in Northern Ireland around identity, that actually what you see is the identity in Northern Ireland being substantially different from that of parts of um, Great Britain. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, difference, which I don't think is reflected in the identity politics of Northern Ireland. And just uh, still on inequality, I mean, maybe, Paul, you might say something just about the the basic figures um, when it comes to pensions and um, welfare payments, because they're pretty, the differences are, are really pretty striking. Yes, I'm, I'm never good at remembering figures off the top of my head, I have to say. I, I write them down rather than remember them in my head. But yeah, well, our, our, our listeners can certainly should certainly read your article. Thank you. That's that's a good idea, Rory. Uh, yeah, there's a significant, um, high, significantly higher level of payment, both on pensions and on welfare benefits in the Republic of Ireland compared with that in Great Britain. Northern Ireland has had some mitigations of uh, get to to uh, deal with some of the the worst aspects or the harshest aspects of benefit changes in Great Britain, uh, which means that its uh, expenditure is more skewed towards supporting people in uh, difficult situations, which contributes to the financial crisis in government in Northern Ireland. But despite that, uh, even within Northern Ireland, people are much better off in the Republic than in the North in terms of uh, their welfare benefits or their pension entitlement. If we move on to health, um, obviously health policy is always a really important political issue, a really important social issue, whether in Great Britain or Northern Ireland or the Republic. But it's also very much um, caught up in the debate about reunification. Um, so what would you say um, about the relative, I suppose, structures and performances of the, the health sector in North and South? I mean, I think you have to start from the premise that the health system in Northern Ireland is broken. I mean, it is very bad. Uh, it's interesting that you can speak to people on the street who will say, well, I would vote for uh, staying within the United Kingdom because I really am committed to the National Health Service and I don't want to lose that free health care. But actually, that's a misunderstanding of the current situation because the National Health Service for many people 
uh, does not really exist. Uh, you are likely to be waiting several years to see a consultant. You're wait likely to be waiting even more years to receive treatment. Um, in September 21, the last period of time, I do happen to have statistics uh, to hand on this, Rory, there were 188,000 uh, patients in Northern Ireland who are on waiting lists for more than a year for their first outpatient appointment. If you go back to 2019, the the number of people on long-term waiting lists in Northern Ireland was uh, 120,000 compared with just over 1,000 in England. So when people talk about a crisis in the National Health Service in Great Britain, it's nothing compared to the scale of the crisis in Northern Ireland. It's basically, it's a service that does not really function for people in need, whether you've got cancer, whether you've got a neurological disorder, whether you've got a gynecological order, disorder. All of those problems mean that you're not likely to be seen in ways that properly treat you. So that has to be recognised as a starting point. Yes, there are charges for people within the Republic of Ireland. And one of the reasons for the, the differences in the expenditure profile for people in the North and the South is that people in the South are much more likely to be on private healthcare insurance systems, which obviously cost money. Uh, increasingly, people in Northern Ireland are moving towards either paying for private insurance or else to pay in order to visit one of the private hospitals. Uh, but what we're also seeing along time, this is the adoption of Shantacare in the in the Republic, which is moving towards more extensive provision free of charge within the, the Republic. Uh, you've got more than half of people now who don't have to pay in order to see a GP, a significant number who don't have to pay for prescriptions. So things are changing. Clearly, if we're talking about a constitutional change within Ireland, it's not going to happen immediately. Um, and what we are seeing is a move in the Republic towards more provision of free healthcare and Northern Ireland, increasingly a collapse of the system. It's interesting, and I'll come to John in a second, um, in I think our second last podcast, um, which was about focus groups uh, made up of people who were um, who had declared themselves to be undecided in the wider opinion poll, and this was with John Doyle and Jennifer Todd, um, what was striking was that perceptions on both sides of the border were rather out of date. In other words, people in the Republic tended to think that um, you know Northern Ireland was, because of the NHS, a sort of a land of milk and honey, um, and people in the North seemed to think that everyone in the Republic had to pay for whatever kind of of treatment, so there is a, but as I say, it, but, but as you rightly say, again, the polling suggests that an attachment to the NHS is a really important factor um, in determining, maybe not for those who are particularly strong in terms of identity politics, but people you know maybe who are you know more open minded um, on the question. I mean, John, I mean the performance of the Irish um, health system. In terms of outcomes, and this is one of the points that Paul makes, seems to have um, improved significantly in recent years and to have surpassed that of, of Northern Ireland. And why do you think that might be? Um, one should always confess to one's mistakes. And in a paper I published, I mentioned the NHS being better in Northern Ireland. And Nevin Institute a paper recently pointed out that I was wrong, and I was wrong. Um, as Paul has identified, like I, I, I'm amazed that um, I can get an appointment with my GP this afternoon if I want. 
I'm talking to my daughter, who's actually a doctor in Oxford. If she wants a daughter, a, a, an appointment with her GP, it'll take a fortnight. Um, in Belfast, talking to friends there, it can take a long time. And I don't, I, it's free for me, actually, given my age. So um, that brought home to me um, uh, that things are not what I thought. And there was an interesting uh, paper uh, released under Freedom of Information from the Department of Health last month which showed the waiting lists were much lower per head of population in the Republic than in Northern Ireland, and also perform, uh, weren't bad compared to, to GB. So, and it's kind of interesting that the department were hiding that paper rather than coming out and saying, actually, we're doing great because the people of the Republic think they're not doing well enough. And also, I suppose, diplomatically, they didn't want to point out the North. The North has enough problems rather than uh, crowing that things are better in the Republic. But it was interesting that the health service is performing better. But both North and South, we suffer from a particular problem. Too many hospitals, small hospitals spread out, which waste money and produces poor performance. Uh, and Mary Harney, whom I didn't agree with on economics, did a great job. Uh, she said, I think there are only seven places that deal with cancer in the Republic. Um, and the cancer outcomes have been dramatically improved. It's not just getting access. And one of the things that I heard was that going to a smaller hospital, you would get immediate, uh, be seen immediately if you have cancer. Um, but the, uh, your outcomes would be much better if you went to the, the main hospital in Cork. And um, so, and Northern Ireland suffer from, suffers from this as well. We need, uh, you don't close the hospitals until you've expanded the other, uh, uh, the major facilities, but concentrating on highly expert, um, uh, 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 concentrating resources. And on this island, there are things now which only take place in Belfast and children are referred to Belfast and similarly to Dublin. That the, this island, if you look at the way the NHS is organized in Britain, in deaneries, they'll have a population of five, six million in each group and handle most, not all, the uh, problems within that area. We're too small on this island. Um, so actually developing an integrated specialized service, which it could end up being just in Dublin and Belfast um, for many things because we're so small um, in population. But we certainly need some of the smaller hospitals need to be merged into larger. And I, I know somebody who said in his living will that if he got ill in Donegal, he wanted to be dragged across the border to Altnagelvin for treatment. Um, um, and similarly, uh, Daisy Hill and Newry, um, rather than somewhere small in the Republic. So this is an issue for us both in terms of improving our health services. And it's a symptom of the political inadequacies of Northern Ireland, that although there is a plan for the rationalisation of the hospital infrastructure, it has not been properly implemented because it's impossible to get agreement between parties that are so divided over identity, they can't agree on anything that's sensible and they're too scared of political disagreement from some of their constituents because they're not willing to argue the case. But just to, to, to stress one other point, health outcomes aren't just about the, the structure of the health service. They're also about other things as well. And there are certain environmental improvements that have been achieved in the Republic that have had significant and substantial benefits in terms of health outcomes that have not been replicated in Northern Ireland. And in particular, I'm talking about smoke control. If I go out of the front door of my 
house in winter, I will be breathing in terrible quality of air because of the burning of solid fuels. And that has been addressed much more effectively in the South than it has in the North. So there are certain things. And, and there's one other point I think is important to make, which stresses the, 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 the fact that all these things interact with each other, which is the fact that our health waiting lists in Northern Ireland are a significant factor in our economic inactivity figures. If you want to improve the, 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 the quality of the economy in Northern Ireland, one of the things you need to do is to substantially reduce the waiting lists and waiting times because there's so many people, some of them highly skilled, who can't go to work because they're waiting several years for a health appointment. Well, for me, and I first really was made aware of this in, in the Bergen McGuinness paper of, uh, of a couple of years ago, I mean, surely the ultimate uh, indicator uh, of the overall state of health in a population uh, has to be life expectancy. Um, and, and that has... Certainly, the relative well, in both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, thank goodness, life expectancy has uh, has increased substantially. But there has been a pretty dramatic turnaround in relative performance, isn't that right? That's right. I mean, the, the Republic is dealing with things which Northern Ireland is unable to deal with things because of its political impasse. I mean, a lot of this stuff is is down to the fact that political decisions are really difficult to make. When you've got a four or five party executive at the moment, it's four party. Previously, it was five parties, each arguing really as much as anything from the basis of identity politics rather than sensible outcomes. It makes it really difficult to get difficult political decisions over the line. And there's nothing more difficult than things like closing some of the smaller hospitals or at least specializing more in the big hospitals and dealing with some of the environmental matters, whether they're dealing with nitrogen on uh, agricultural land or whether they are actually air quality. It's just very difficult to get contentious political decisions over the line. And that has real life impacts on the health of the population and the well-being of the population. And of course, presumably higher poverty rates um, and, and, and lower levels of employment all, all play a part too. But John, I say this, to me, this crossing of the lines on the graph, as it were, um, in regard to life expectancy, both for people at birth, but also even for those of sort of 65 plus, um, is really striking. Well, I published a paper with um, two colleagues, Nusher Noodle and David Byrne, a decade ago, um, looking at data from 2006 for the Republic, which showed a very strong relationship between education and life expectancy. That early school leavers um, had a much lower life expectancy. Now, to some extent, it could be because they had pre-existing, say, psychiatric problems, which meant they left school early. Um, but even controlling for that, it, the, some of the figures were horrifying that boys at age 20 who had left school with very limited qualifications, 5% of them were going to be dead by the time they were 40, whereas it was under 1% would be the norm for the rest of the population. Um, and some of it was risky behavior, like a lot of the deaths were suicide, car crashes or whatever. And actually, we uh, there's concern in the Republic at the moment that no, the deaths are up from car accidents. But compared to 15 years ago, they're dramatically down. And part of it is um, the, in, the in, in, largely ending of the early school leaver problem. During the crisis, until then, um, 
10 to 20 percent of boys left early. Now you're down to five to 10. It's a dramatic reduction. And that has health impacts in terms of consumption behavior, in terms of smoking and um, a whole range of things. So I think that that is one of the factors. Like if you just control for education, that probably explains the change in the life expectancy, the relative life expectancy between the Republic and Northern Ireland. But it's too simple to say that it's education, because as I said, some of the people who drop out of education have pre-existing problems, but still it is a factor. That, as John has said in previous papers, uh, the selective schooling system in Northern Ireland is actually a major factor in a lot of the social and economic outcomes that we have in Northern Ireland. Because essentially, although it is an exam-based system, it is in reality a class-based system. And typically, people from lower-income households don't go to the grammar schools. Many of them drop out uh, either intellectually or physically during their teenage years, and that creates a, a a lag over decades in terms of economic performance and poor social outcomes. That is a real problem. And that is a division that crosses the political lines in Northern Ireland in the sense that the DUP is very committed to the selective system because it believes that grammar schools are excellent. And the other parties are more concerned with the social connections to selection. We're we're moving on in, in time, but I wanted just to ask you, both and maybe Paul first uh, to talk a bit about the the regional dimensions. I mean, you've touched on them earlier in various ways in terms of comparisons, but one of the the striking points is just how how different um, levels of income and 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 well being are in different parts of Northern Ireland and in different regions of the Republic as as well with. With Dublin and and Belfast sort of leading the uh, leading the pack in in both cases. Yeah, there's there's clearly a problem on the island of Ireland about the northwest, by which I mean economic performance in the northwest is very weak compared to to, to most of the rest of the island, and that applies equally to Donegal and Derry, where I I live and and work, um, and we are geographically marginalized, but you could argue also politically marginalized. I was involved in commissioning uh, a survey around attitudes in the eastern part of Donegal, and the population felt uh, isolated, alienated from the political system everywhere, basically. And that in, uh, is something that needs to be addressed. And one of the problems is partition. It, is, it means that because Donegal is stuck out on its own in terms of the republic, uh, and because uh, Derry has a cross-border labour market, which isn't recognised by the economic uh, levers of Northern Ireland, it means that it's very difficult to get the levels of investment and job creation and even educational skills coordination that's required. And really, one of the things that's needed, whatever the constitutional outcome of the conversations that are taking place over the next few years, we need to see the Northwest as a single integrated region that is promoted on a cross-border basis and to have a, a, an employment and a, a skills policy that is cross-border. And, and that is one of the things that uh, someone who lives in Derry is I'm very committed to. John? Yeah, I know. I totally agree with Paul. And... The, the lessons from regional economics are you need a major urban center in a region, otherwise in a modern world. And the major urban center is Derry. Um, uh, you, you have no choice. And what I was at a conference 
over 20 years ago in Churchill in Donegal, where I, I was talk, rabbiting on about the Irish economy or whatever. But I stayed on for the Sunday morning where all the locals were discussing with the county manager, Donegal, and all the local councillors talked about the importance of Derry to Donegal. There was a complete recognition that the future of Donegal lay with Derry. And this isn't new. If you look at, I looked at the 1911 census, and um, the only place that people from what was to be the Republic had moved to Northern Ireland was in Derry. Donegal, Derry men married Donegal women, and there was a big immigration there. And even then, Derry was the potential. It is the failure of the last century to develop Derry in the Northwest is this, probably the single biggest regional failure on this island. Like Galway has been hugely successful. Problem is, it's still a bit too small to suck in the whole region. It's good for Galway and, and North Clare. Cork, the southwest is different. The southwest stands on its own with Cork and to some extent Limerick. Um, but it's the northwest what's really missing is a successful dairy. Um, we all need it. And exactly so i mean one of the interesting questions would be that irrespective as 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 paul says of the constitutional status of of northern ireland this question of uh, of regional um equality or not even equality but a narrowing of 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 gaps i mean do you see i mean either of you in an ideal world um are, are there places from which we could we could learn um, in terms of regional policy, leaving leaving um, the political constraints um, aside? I was involved in doing work in England for the old regional development agencies, in particular in the East Midlands. And I was very impressed with the quality of work and with some of the outcomes. And I did feel that that was the type of organisation that worked very well. Unfortunately, from my point of view, it was abolished because it was a Labour Party initiative which when the Conservatives came in, uh, they abolished. I mean, it did have difficulties because some regions see themselves as having a regional identity, other places don't. Uh, and that was basically what killed it off in England because there were, uh, in, the, in particular in the northeast of England, there wasn't that same sense of identity around a region around rather than around cities. In the East Midlands, you could actually get over it and recognise Leicester, Derby and Nottingham as equal cities. Uh, but it does seem to me that we need more of a regional presence within Ireland to push for those regions and the capital cities of those regions. And that is something that I would like to see. Uh, there's been attempts at it, but I don't think they have the status or, or significance that they need. John, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that you have to work with what we've got in Ireland. So there are lessons from elsewhere, but like there was a study done for DETI in the department in Northern Ireland by Julius Siegschlag of the ESRI, which said what Paul has been saying, um, education is important. Um, so the, the low levels of educational attainment in Derry, chicken and egg, um, how do you change that? Um, it seems to me that the failure to develop McGee um, 40 years ago as a university sort of to put major resources in there was a mistake and it remains a mistake. And that um, uh, that's one. But if all the graduates from uh, McGee or the University of Derry emigrate to elsewhere on this island or to outside this island, you still have the problem. So it is making a place 
somewhere that people want to live. And the thing that struck me about Galway is that if you ask students uh, in Dublin, would they work outside of Dublin? Yeah, they'd work in Brisbane or Melbourne or New York or Frankfurt. Um, but the idea of moving to somewhere else on the island, no. The one place they actually were prepared to move to was Galway. Um, Galway has uh, an aura about it. And when I, um, uh, we did a report for the Department of Finance over 20 years ago on regional development, exactly this issue. And we said, actually, Galway is attracting people from outside of Galway. And we mentioned it had two theatre groups and the Department of Finance had a canary. They thought we were going to recommend two theatre groups in Waterford and Derry and all over the place. Galway found itself, it's the, uh, uh, Mocknes and the Druid. Um, Derry has got to find itself, but it's not just about economics. It's about making Derry an exciting place to be. It's the only walled town in Ireland. Too few Irish people have visited it. Um, I'm not sure that's enough to make it exciting, but um, it is how you make yourself exciting to not just people in Derry, but to people from all over the island. And this is a very important point that John raises there, which is the, the, the overlay of different factors that you need to have, for example, a good artistic life in a city to encourage people there. But without the size of a university that, say, Galway has or Limerick has, you don't have the number of people that will sustain an artistic venture. So this is a this is a real significant problem. But we shouldn't get too hung up just about universities because the number of university students emerging from Northern Ireland is about a third too few. But also, we've got a real problem with our technical colleges because, and this goes back to the selective schooling system, because we're expecting the technical colleges to do too many different things. We're expecting them to mop up the failures of the selective schooling system to actually support students that didn't get good grades. But equally, we're expecting them to provide trade skills, which might be quite simply hairdressing, which doesn't really add anything of value to the economy because it's replacing existing hairdressers. But equally, we're expecting them to provide high quality technical skills for the, uh, the technical employers. And I think there is a problem there, which the South has, has, has addressed with the technological universities that we need to grip, get to grips with in, in Northern Ireland. A final, a final question, um, which both of you might consider, but Paul in particular. Uh, Paul, you said at the beginning that clearly these comparisons, uh, while they're extremely interesting and it's fascinating to have them broken down on a regional level uh, as well as by the level of jurisdiction, there's still a lot depends on on who and where and what you you happen to be. So I suppose, again, not a scientific question, but what kind of person living in Northern Ireland is, in relative terms, best off vis-a-vis the South, whether they're better off or worse off? And conversely, what kind of person in Northern Ireland is probably worse off? Uh, the person who's best off is someone like me, actually, Rory, because I have had uh, 23 years living in one of the lowest cost areas in these islands, living off wages that are at London and Dublin levels. Uh, (laughs) And I've been self-employed for many years, having a very good quality of life in a beautiful place uh, with a very low cost of living compared with my my income source. So I've done very well out of this. Um, But 
you go down the road. Uh, I live very close to the Crecon Estate. The Gallia Estate's very close. Uh, you can go across the uh, the river to um, uh, Lincoln Court. And, and people who are on welfare benefits because the education system has failed them or because they've entered into ill health, uh, they are really struggling. Similarly, people in the hospitality sector that are on zero-hours contract, casualized employment, doing the odd wage here and there, uh, here and there, not really getting any significant support from the benefit system. They are very badly off. So it goes both ways in terms of the Northwest. And that is where you've got that significant disparity. I suppose the upper middle class person in Belfast, um, and of course not a very large number, but still I suppose people who are probably disproportionately influential in public discussion and, and otherwise, I suppose they can buy houses more a lot more cheaply than their opposite numbers in Dublin. Um, and also, if they want to send their children to selective schools, they can go free to your Insts and Victoria Colleges and so on, as opposed to having to pay money to go to Belvedere or Alexander College in, in Dublin. So, But overall... That, that's but think, true. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But of course, house prices in South Belfast are often quite high. They're much higher than in North or West uh, Belfast. Yes. But the other thing that is really interesting is I saw analysis by The Economist magazine a few years ago, which found that South Belfast had the, I think, highest income per resident of any location, any constituency, the whole of Europe. And the reason for that is because there's lots of very high paid jobs in South Belfast that are fulfilled by people who commute in uh, from Lisbon and from Bangor, Castle Ray. And what you have is a commuting economy in Northern Ireland, in parts of Northern Ireland, which is not regionally fair and which also is economically, I mean, environmentally very destructive because you have really very negative implications from that. We don't have an effective public transport system and we don't have regional, uh, a regionally fair distribution of, uh, of wealth and job uh, creation. Well, I think we're pretty well um, at the end of our time, but just... Um would either of you have a, a sort of a, a final sentence or a point you wish you'd had the chance to make? I mean, my, my final view, uh, my final comment uh, would be this paper does not answer the question about whether people will be better or worse off after uh, Irish unity. What it seeks to do is address the issues that need to be considered as we go forward, as probably we'll have a border poll a constitutional discussion at some point in the future. It's not a simple answer, and there are things that need to be done on both sides of the border to actually improve the future of people here. Well, Paul Gosling uh, and John Fitzgerald, thank you both so much for a really interesting um, and lively discussion. And Paul, thank you again uh, for your paper, which can be found on the Aaron's Project uh, website, um, which is in turn findable through the Royal Irish Academy website. Thank you both very much indeed. Thanks, Roy. Aaron's stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Kyo Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Kyo School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research. 
across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. The aim is to be scholarly, uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021, um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast you just listened to, and I also hope that you will find others uh, of interest um, on our website, which is Aaron's Project. And also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening.